Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is George Moore, who's written a very fascinating book called Stuck in the Present. I'm hoping we don't get stuck in the podcast. But anyway, um, how history frees and forms Christians. And so we're going to be talking about the ideas in this book. Uh, David is um, founder and president of Two Cities Ministry in Austin, Texas. So, um, and <laughs> I love this subdescription. He's had many jobs from arresting shoplifters to pastoral ministry. The latter was the most dangerous. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, so you obviously survived because you're able to talk with us. So that's good. Um, but we're looking forward to, to uh, having this conversation with you, David. Thanks for being a part of the table. Oh, great to be with you. So, um, so before we talk about why you wrote the book and what it's about, how did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this? Talk about uh, the nature of your ministry and the background that you brought to writing the book. Well, the assumption you're using is nice, but I'll, I'll take that out and say get into a gig like this. Okay. So, uh, and by the way, Two Cities is a ministry we started in 98, and it's not Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's not Dallas, Fort Worth. It's the city of God and the city of man, Augustine. It's uh, kind of the inspiration for it. But basically, I was a, a staff worker for Campus Crusade for Christ. I've been thinking about adult education for many, many years and um, went off to seminary a couple of times, both Dallas before uh, doing campus ministry and Trinity afterwards, then pastoral ministry. And we had started a Bible Institute. Uh, I really felt like there was a need for something more robust than the typical Sunday school class we had at our church, but something not quite maybe seminary level. And so we started this Bible Institute. So that was another kind of interesting uh, pilgrimage. Uh, the elders were skeptical, frankly. They didn't think there'd be much interest to it. And I taught the first class I taught Wednesday evening, seven to nine, uh, they even gave me a separate, they said it's a separate budget. It's on the church budget. It's your budget. And uh, 115 people showed up for this class. Uh, they unfortunately never really got that excited about it, even though we had hundreds of people take classes. So I've been really interested in adult education. This book that we're about to discuss is kind of the, uh, the result of many, many decades, really, maybe like three decades of thinking about this issue. And the ministry, Daryl, is really a ministry that, I think of myself at a busy intersection, and on one side of the boulevard, there are a bunch of scholars in cars racing by in one direction, let's say southward. And the other side of the boulevard are people that are suspicious of scholars racing by the other side. And I gingerly step out in the street, and it's pretty scary, and I'm trying to get everyone to slow down and maybe park their cars and maybe have a conversation because typically the only time they talk is when they get in an accident and then they're really mad at each other. Uh, there are scholars obviously like you, and I know a bunch of them. I got a bunch of scholar friends who 
are trying to do both really responsible scholarship and also appeal and address the needs of the church, which is great. Uh, I'd like to see more scholars doing that, as I'm sure you would too. And But yet, notwithstanding great examples, and there's obviously a number of, of quote, lay people that don't like that terminology so much, who are very interested in robust education. But I'd say generally the stereotype is suspicion on both sides. And so the Ministry Two Cities is seeking to bring the best of scholarship to the church and have more conversations where, you know, the quote-unquote layperson can hear from people that have real expertise and go, wow, this is super helpful and edifying. And scholars also can learn maybe to form and fashion questions and their own scholarship moving forward that's helping uh, maybe triggered by the questions that, you know, others are asking. So um, it's it's a very rewarding yet challenging ministry. I'll, I'll put it that way. Now, and, and your ministry experience has uh, taken you to some interesting places. I think uh, I've heard you mention that you worked at Stanford for a while. Was that a, in student ministry? How, what, what was that connection? Yeah, it was college ministry at Stanford. And so that was right after Dallas Seminary. So 84 to 89, I was a director for the ministry there. And then 89 to 90, I traveled throughout mainly Northern California, Berkeley, Humboldt, Chico, Fresno State, all those different schools, and spoke and encouraged the staff on kind of biblical and theological issues. So this has been something that's kind of been percolating for you for a very long time because of the nature of your past ministry experience and the way in which you saw people processing um, the relationship of the academy, if I can say it that way, in the church. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, so let's turn our attention t- to the book. Um, I-, I love the title, Stuck in the Present, and, which I'm taking... Um, I'm taking that the front part of the title is not a compliment that we're stuck in the present. Uh, uh, It's the perceptive person that I am. Okay. So, so talk a little bit about the title and what you're seeking to do with the book. Well, the title is, uh, you know, I've been teaching on this for quite a while and it kept going through different iterations. Uh, InterVarsity was interested in voiced interest in it, but ironically they'd already inked a deal with one of the interviews that's in the back of the book. A terrific guy at Wheaton, Tracy McKenzie. But I had been using the title for many years, Daryl, probably 15 years. My main title was Making Connections. And the subtitle back then was Linking Responsibly to the Past. And you probably know this from writing a, a bunch of books. You get kind of attached like a kid to a title. And you think, oh, this is really good, Making Connections. I like the kind of linkage, linking, you know, responsibly to the past. And when the publisher took the book. He said, I love the book, but I really think you need a punchier title. So I was upstairs grousing for a bit up in the library. I came downstairs after a two, three hour grouse session, came down to find my wife. And I started thinking, you know, I think he's right. And I, no pun intended, but I got stuck on the word stuck. That's all I had was stuck. I thought stuck is a nice punchy word. Um, and it gets people's attention. It's arresting, but I couldn't go any further with it. So I came in the kitchen. I said, Hey, uh, Doreen, um, my wife, I said, um, I, you know, we got this title thing. I'm kind of stuck on stuck. And she just flawlessly said, how about stuck in the present? And I was like, 
I will share the royalties with you. <laughs> and uh, uh, the subtitle is How History Frees and Forms Christians. So you're stuck in the present. The title uh, is given because most Americans, and I'm talking to Americans in this book, are trying to figure out the present moment, which is fraught with all kinds of controversial issues, mainly by just knowing about the present moment. So the large feeder streams of information that most people are getting to figure out the present moment are social media, which is usually their own tribe, their own ghetto, their own silo, right? Right. And cable news, which... You know, if you're watching Fox, it's decidedly right. If you're watching MSNBC, left of center, CNN, also left of center or center, depending on how you want to view it. So we need the hist- We need a longer view. We need more reference points. More reference points, the merrier. They, they stabilize us. Um, and most people do not have it. And, and if I can offer this illustration, Daryl, when we were at Stanford, you mentioned we were at Stanford, we went through that infamous earthquake, that 7.1 in the Bay Area that stopped the World Series. Its epicenter was really Santa Cruz area, but in Palo Alto, where we were, it hit really hard. And earthquakes can be different. This was an undulation earthquake, and uh, it was rush hour. It's 5.04, and I remember thinking, our car is going east to west against the tires. And everyone had stopped. And I thought all my tires blew out, but I thought not everyone in Palo Alto is going to stop for my tires. This is all in a couple split seconds. And then I looked out to the left of me. There was a motel right at the end of our street. I was trying to get a reference point, and the motel was moving. When we turned on our street, there was a young boy about eight walking back his mangled bike. His bike was mangled and in both his knees were bloodied. And that's what most people are trying to do. They're trying to figure out how can I get a stable, sane sense of the path of what's going on in the present by just looking at stuff in the present. And it's like, you can't. And that's why we have the kind of big problems we do today, I think, in the church and outside the church. Now uh, it's it, it's a it's a neat title, and I do think that the, it uh, what you're really describing is a kind of myopathy, you know, where that where you've put your blinders on, you're so focused on what's going on in the present, you don't see any flow from what's happened in the past. You have no analogies to work with about things that have happened before, that kind of thing. And so, um, so you actually are li- in the midst of trying to make an analysis. You're limiting your ability to make that analysis. Correct. And, and uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and, and, you know, we've never had a time as acute where there is, and this is pretty much, you know, the polling data, all that kind of stuff shows it, where we've had this level of ignorance wedded with this level of arrogance. So it's like, I don't know, Daryl, what the heck I'm talking about, but you better listen to me. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, just so I, I said this already, and I'll have to probably say it a couple more times just so the listeners get it. The problem is no less really uh, severe in the church as it is out in the culture. I'm, I'm in a lot of different churches with a lot of dear people, but the level of ignorance going on social media, conspiracy theories, 
is pretty thick and evangelical church is just like it is out in the culture generally. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's fair. And of course, what, what history now you're talking to someone who, who majored in European history in college. Okay. And then of course I've done, my work is related to the historical Jesus and I do historical work in relationship to the gospel. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm marinated in history. Okay, <laughs> I'm a historian pork tenderloin. So, uh, 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 so, uh, so, so it's a challenge. But what history does is it gives you parallels, it gives you analogies, it gives you avenues for thinking, etc. Um, which, if you lack, you may think, oh, we've, it's never been like this before. Um, we've never been here uh, like this, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, I read, I read what's going on today and I go, we're actually in a position that's not very different than the early church. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, anyone who understands anything about Greco-Roman culture understands how radical it was and how um, unfettered it was, etc. And the church managed to survive and thrive mm-hmm. in the midst of that culture um, because of the way it went about doing its ministry. And there are immense lessons for us in that time frame and from that perspective if we understand the history and the background and we'll engage with, with the text, not through a lens that's, that's fraught with 21st century questions, but a lens that's fraught with understanding how a minority actually functioned well because they represented their God well in the midst of a culture that was adrift. Right. Right. And that's 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 a huge issue with, you know, when uh, during 2015, the Hillary Clinton uh, running against Trump, uh, I would go to conservative churches that were, you know, bending my ear on, you know, if Hillary Clinton gets into office, you know, the, the country's over with, et cetera, as if they could see the future. Uh, a lot of problems with it from a historic and biblical standpoint. My At the time, I was preaching a fair bit on Jeremiah, and I mentioned, well, three times in Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant, chapter 7, 11, and 14. And do you think Nebuchadnezzar is possibly a little worse than Hillary? And if God is still in charge with Nebuchadnezzar, not that I would want Hillary Clinton to be elected. I mean, certainly a lot of policies I disagree with, but it, there was so much hand-wringing and, and it really was a sense of almost practically like, oh yeah, I know God's sovereign, but I'm freaking out, Daryl. I am absolutely freaking out. And it's like, no, you don't know in the biblical sense. It doesn't make us apathetic. We still need to do our due diligence and all that sort of thing. But I'm amazed. It, it usually, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that when I see Christians like that, I can almost say they don't have any sense of history or very little, very spotty, because history gives you that grounding of like, wow, there's been some desperate times. You mentioned the first century of the early church. Um, it gives you those reference points for that kind of sanity that you need. And, and alongside of it, next to your history, you got to put your theology and you know, Jesus, when he's talking about the confession that the disciples make at Caesarea Philippi, says, you know, I'm going to build my church off of what you're confessing here, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I tell people, there's no reason to fear what's going on. And in fact, 
we shouldn't be surprised that what's going on is going on because Jesus spent the whole second half of his ministry saying, if you follow me, the world will push back. Um, So, um, I mean, the whole thing about bearing your cross daily has that as the core assumption, and that's a core element of discipleship. So, so once we put him, if we can, if we can make a marriage here and wed history to theology, all right, so that they're working together, then there's a lot to say that there's another very important passage in First Peter three, in which it talks about, you know, if you suffer for doing the right thing, okay, uh, don't be afraid of them. You know, you're not to operate out of fear. That fear is not the best place to operate. You operate out of your solid identity in Christ, and you recognize you don't fear the one who can harm you physically. You fear the one, you know, who's the creator God. And uh, uh, and so all those things build into the idea of we, we shouldn't, believers should never be in the position where they're panicking. Right, right. And history teaches us that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, to riff on the thing with Jesus, the confession, uh, you've probably heard that old Chesterton quote, you know, seven times in church history, it seemed like the church had gone to the dogs only to find out that in each case, the dog died. And, um, you know, that's what I think history gives us. I, I think, to your point about the first century, I think there are tons of parallels that are really helpful for how to interact in a space which is new for Americans, where Christendom, kind of the cultural uh, cloud, I know Tim Keller spoke on this at Dallas Seminar recently, is gone away with. And you and I grew up, you know, spiritually in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when we were still the beneficiaries of a lot of cultural cachet that came with Christendom. Well, that's over with, and it's probably the better that it is. Um, And yet, I think, as I mentioned in the book, I think there's two dangers. One is to say that there's complete parallels to the past. There's a lot of parallels. And to lose sight of the uniquenesses of the present moment. Internet is unique. The speed, modernity. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So most Christians, I would say, make the mistake, um, the fear-riddled Christians make the mistake of talking about how utterly unique our moment is, and that's problematic. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I think that the challenge here is is getting people to um, be be comfortable where God has. Dwayne Lifton has a wonderful phrase, former president at, Wheat, at uh, Wheaton, former DTS faculty member. In fact, when I came on the faculty, he was on faculty here. 
has a phrase. He says, we're no longer the home team. And that's a great image. I mean, uh, and so, so not only are we not only, only are we not the home team, in one sense, we probably never were when it comes to the world. Right. And so, which is why the Bible says we're exiles and aliens in a strange land. Our citizenship is a citizenship in heaven. It's not tied to the citizenship on the earth. And so, um, so appreciating who it is we represent and how we represent that king. In fact, I got to ask someone the other day, asked me, so how do we talk about the kingdom when the context is someone so wedded to the particular set of problems we have? I said, you remind them what the kingdom is. The kingdom is multinational. The kingdom is made up and designed to bring diverse people together around a shared savior and a shared belief in God. And you're inviting people out of the space that they're living in into this space. You know, we sometimes get in trouble because we want to make the kingdom expand outward and we get territorial. It becomes a discussion about power. But actually what we're talking about is God has produced an enclave on the earth that represents him. And we invite people into that space. And then hopefully if enough people come into that space and actually live the way God says to live, then uh, then there's then there's the place to feel confident, secure, et cetera, even when the world is pushing back against you, which the world will do until Christ fixes it. Not to say that we aren't to engage the world, but we need to understand how to win and lose well in that conversation and understand where the real victory is, the real victories in our community and in our relationship with God. So we're, we're faced with the challenge of, of how to live in this space that has changed around us into um, really almost accept uh, what's going on around us and then approach everything from a slightly different angle um, that reflects the way in which God invites people into this sacred space that is to be the church. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where, you know, and you see this, I'm sure, a lot. I mean, I have seen basic Bible literacy just plummet among again, so-called evangelicals who have an official high view of scripture. I've seen the ability, Daryl, when I do more interactive Bible studies, uh, and the and I largely speak to college educated, many times people with graduate degrees, and I'll ask them to look at the context. And it's not that difficult, usually what I'm asking for them to look at the text and within the context, and it's usually an immediate you know, sort of thing is that um, I, I find in the last eight, 10 years for sure, a growing inability just to read carefully, to want to read. So we're at this place where a lot of Christians still feel, you know, within the church, the pressure to say, yeah, the Bible's really special and important to me. And yet the dirty secret, which isn't such a secret, is most people aren't reading it very well or very much. And so thinking about the kingdom, as you described, is very much truncated and limited on if I don't have an understanding of the full sweep of scripture, like, wow, this is really contrary to even the way a lot of us Christians are thinking about the kingdom. I need to be rebuked and corrected and change my posture about how fearful I am, as we were talking about earlier, and really have my grounding in what God is is wanting to do, not what I think he's doing. 
That's right. So, um, and puts a huge challenge on the church actually to be the church that God has called us to be. We're so busy trying to fix everybody else that sometimes we've slipped in our ability to be who we're supposed to be as a result. And the power of our testimony is going to come from being the church God made us to be, not from being something that claims to be one thing and is something else. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's let's talk about um, maybe um, we got time maybe for one other discussion here. Um, what are some of the lessons of history? Who are who are some of your historical heroes, and what do they teach us? Maybe that's the best way to ask ask the question. It may sound like a strange question, but it but I think it's an important one. Yeah, no, that's fine. I. I have different ones for different purposes. Uh, as you know from the book, uh, on the non-Christian side, I'm, I, I really believe that Christians, once they're really grounded in the Christian faith, ought to have maybe one or two conversation uh, partners outside the faith that poke and prod them and push them to have more integrity and maybe are raising questions that you know we either feel too threatened to raise or we're too blind to, to raise. So a 19th century American thinker, uh, probably the most consequential uh, person that really broke with the institutional church and became a well-known thinker whose influence is very much with us today. Ralph Waldo Emerson on the non-Christian side has been a kind of an ongoing interlocutor. I plan on writing a book where we're putting him in conversation with Jonathan Edwards and I can immediately pivot to Edwards and the Puritans from there, kind of going back. Um, Emerson was born, by the way, in 1803, Edwards in 1703, so they're separated by a century. Edwards had a big effect on us, uh, both my wife and I. Her book is on Edwards, um, her thesis was. Uh, the Puritans, for both of us, has been significant. I think there's different times uh, in the church. I think the the second century, the apologists, I think uh, I'm thinking of people like Tertullian, Justin Martyr, some of the others have been really significant for kind of how robust and yet how uh, distinctly Christian they were in their engagement. Augustine has had a huge impact on me. Uh, basically, his posture, again, kind of similar to Tertullian and Justin Martyr, when very like in City of God, as you know, he really understood the alternative view that he was critiquing better than almost every adherent of that view. So he could go in and talk in more depth about the view that he was opposing than those who were holding the view and then show them incrementally that the incarnation is really the fulfillment of their desires. So Augustine's had a huge impact. Uh, John Bunyan, I'll just throw one more in there. Uh, I take men regularly in my discipleship, Daryl, through two books. I, if I could wave a wand, every Christian in America has got to read two books outside the Bible, Confessions by Augustine and Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan, I think, has the most uh, realistic, comprehensive view of sanctification that does not straitjacket any person into some kind of formulaic one-size-fits-all. He understands different personalities, different temptations, different virtues. Everyone, every true pilgrim is going to the city of God, but the things that waylay them on the way, 
Some may get waylaid by Downing Castle, some by the Valley of Humiliation, some by Vanity Fair. It's a powerful, powerful book. So there's just a smattering of some of the folks. Yeah, you actually anticipated my next question to a certain degree, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway, because you've already sort of begun to answer the question. And that is, if you were starting from scratch, you know, someone says, okay, I get what you're after. I'd like to get a little more historically grounded. Um, where would you suggest people go to kind of get, get started? I think, you know, in the book, I talk about that I really believe whether you're learning about a radiator on a car, you're learning how to play the guitar, or you're learning Greek or whatever it is, that it's really helpful to get the 50,000 foot view first and really get a good big picture and then start to drill down the specifics. And a good example of the problem with this is that a lot of people, and I've asked, uh, in great Bible teaching churches will hear a pastor. They've been there maybe 30 years hearing great teaching. And they'll hear a pastor say really quickly, well, of course, Jeremiah's a pre-exilic prophet and he's a major prophet. And then let's say the pastor doesn't explain either what pre-exilic or major prophet means. He just goes on to make his point. And that person's there 30 years going, I should know by now probably what a pre-exilic, maybe is that like, is that something with Assyria? There's a Babylonian thing too. And now they're distracted, like trying to get the big picture and a major prophet, does that mean like more important or longer? And so I really think the big picture is crucial. I think the for church history, some of the best big picture books John Hanna's got a two-volume that came out recently that looks great. I've not read it, but knowing him, it's probably terrific. Um, the one that I, a lot of times I recommend is Bruce Shelley's uh, A Church History in Plain Language that's been through maybe five different reprints. It's very helpful. Jeff Bingham, who used to teach uh, there at Dallas Seminary, wrote A Pocket Guide to Church History, about 165 pages with InterVarsity. I've read that. It's actually a very good 50, he covers all the waterfront. That's very helpful. 165 pages. You kind of get those handholds of how is the Renaissance different than the Enlightenment? How is the Enlightenment usher in modernity? Those things are really, really helpful to have kind of those big picture hooks to go. Now I can, if I'm interested in a period, I can start reading more specifically. Yeah, when I, you know, when I became a Christian, uh, of course, this is an older book. I don't even know if it's still in print, but very early on, I wrote a book called Christianity Through the Centuries by Earl Cairns. Yeah. He used to teach church history, I think, at Moody. And 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 for that very reason, just, just to get a sense, I mean, I knew because of my undergraduate background, kind of the run a mill history through the history of Europe, really, I covered up to the Enlightenment in some detail. Uh, but I, where I, what I didn't know were, were, was the church side of that story, if I can say it that way, um, which is what I, I needed to put, put kind of the whole package together. So that certainly is uh, a helpful way in. And, and, of course, what it gives you is perspective and analogy. But here's one way in which our modern world is different, at least for most of our church history, that people have to remember. I'd like to get your comment on this. It'll be the last thing we can cover. And that is... Um, in, when, for example, if I think about a Wilberforce, you know, the, this, this figure, mammoth figure who helped turn the corner on, on slavery, 
or um, even some of the other people that you mentioned, Jonathan Edwards or uh, or um, uh, Bunyan, you know, you know, whatever, whatever you where, wherever you're going here, the backdrop was a Christian was a Christian worldview and world for for much of our history, which they could rely on. There was a what I call the Judeo-Christian net caught people, whether they were in the church or not. That net existed and it caught them. What's gone is that net. Mm-hmm. That net doesn't exist anymore. There's there's no shared cultural Judeo-Christian backdrop that people inherited to help them negotiate the space. And now what we have is just a mass of alternatives. Um, and so I tell people that, and this is, gets to the information thing you alluded to earlier, so people are a little more dislocated. Um, there's stuff coming at them from every direction. There are all kinds of alternatives that are out there. There are all, there are all kinds of mixes that are possible as a result. Um, people not only know about different civilizations and different uh, nationalities, their neighbors come from there. This is the difference between the younger generation and our generation in some ways. We grew up theoretically engaging with some of this, but they've grown up with names and faces they can put on these various positions because of the way people have moved around, et cetera. I think that's a real challenge for the church. Huge. Uh, You know, one thing that I I took away and I've been thinking about it a lot, um, there's a terrific book by Yuval Levin. He's a political scientist and he wrote has written a number of really seminal works, but uh, the one maybe that he's best known for is The Great Debate. And it's the debate between the left and right politically and where it merges. And he uses, it's kind of a dual biography of Edmund Burke, the quote unquote conservative, and Thomas Paine, the radical liberal who believes no in start the world afresh, which obviously he was big for the American Revolution. What Levin says, which I think is really powerful, Darrow, and it's kind of a hanging curveball, it's that to use another analogy, it's constantly nagging me. Is that Levin says, in order for Edmund Burke, the conservative, who believes you should preserve institutions, convince them not only of the truthfulness, but the beauty of the truth. And I would say, if I was asked, how well do I think American evangelicals have done in representing the truthfulness of Scripture? I'd say A, A minus, maybe even A plus in a lot of places. And then if you said, well, how well do you think they, we've done, because I'm not outside of that, how well have we done in representing the beauty, the compelling nature of the truth? I'd say, man, that's like a C minus, D plus, not very good. You know, yeah, you're saying, yet, some, go ahead. Sorry. Mo- monogamy, let's say man and woman in marriage is a beautiful thing from a scriptural standpoint. But in the culture at large, it's viewed as like, oh, those Christians, they're really nasty about this whole monogamous thing. And man and woman, that's the only legitimate marriage. And and it just it just seems nasty. And, and I'm already saying it's beautiful God in scripture. So is it just our culture's fault purely because of their sin, which obviously is a huge factor, or is there any complicity on our part? I'm not doing a great job in promulgating the beauty of the truthfulness. I, I don't think we've done a great job there. Yeah. And you're saying in a, in a different way, something I also 
think about and and say regularly, which is in any dispute, there's the content of what you're dealing with, and then there's the relational element of how you interact around that content. And so, and conservatives tend to be so focused on their content and getting their content right, they don't pay attention quite so much to how they're relating to the person while they're working with that content. And to, and to just layer what you're saying on what I'm saying. And there's a beauty to the way you relate, especially important when you're not agreeing. Right. And, and when you lose that, when you lose that, that relational element, that relational sensitivity, um, and you, and you uh, misappropriate the tone relationally, you can be right in your content, you're wrong relationally, and you're still wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and if you're watching, I won't be because it'll make it to, you know, present moment, but there's even some major debates going on, even as we speak, you know, on the blogosphere and others where, you know, various evangelical leaders are turned against each other on a whole raft of issues. And there's, I'm looking at both, you know, like, like you just described both the content of what you know, what they're trying to say, but also the tonal quality. And it really is distracting when you feel like, and, and, and by the way, I have had some, I just want to admit it for anyone that sees me and goes, I remember having a conversation with him one time that wasn't great. So I am, I'm chief among sinners here. I don't want to say I've just totally perfected this. I work hard and I pray. It's still part of my sanctification. And, and I think it's especially exacerbated. I think we all know this, that when the person we're in disagreement with, there really already is kind of a personality difficulty there, maybe unstated, but for whatever reason, it's there. And um, I, you know, I've certainly had my ups and downs on that. So, but yes, I think we need to show the beauty and be gracious and, I mean, Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love. It's like, wow. I mean, that has st stuck with me ever since I've kind of meditated and memorized that verse as a pastor. And, and again, I don't always apply it, but there's Paul making it really clear what, what we need to be about. Well, David, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, with us to talk about this and, and to uh, get us unstuck. Uh, uh, I, I, we can't move out of the present. So that part that we're stuck in that we're stuck in the present, but we don't have to be stuck in the present in terms of our knowledge of how to look at the present. And right. so I really do appreciate um, you giving us your time to talk about this. Great being with you. Can I, can I, cause I know you have, Listeners don't know this. You just have the the galley copy. Can I hold up my book as a copy? Sure, just sure. Go ahead. It is to for anyone that's interested in second the present. So I anyway. You have thanks. to stick it up there long enough so we can see it. Okay. <laughs> it's okay to be stuck when you're showing your book. There you go. Thanks. Appreciate that. Thanks, David. Look, uh, I want to. I, I want. Go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, I usually have their books on their bookshelf. I don't do that, but I'll hold them up. So there, there you go. go. That sounds great. Well, I want to thank you all for visiting us on the table today. Please do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast. Leave an honest review. Uh, this really does help more people to discover these conversations. 
And we hope you'll join us next time on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.